Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Join me in Revelation chapter 5. We're in week 3. Going to explore something this morning that's intuitive and really instinctive all to really all of humanity. And, it, and it's the desire to know what's really going on. You ever felt like that? Man, there's something else kind of going on behind the scenes here, or this seems a little fishy, or maybe things are better than I thought they were, that there's something instinctive and even God-given in each of us that is going to meet with God's Word today. Uh, But the fact is, we live in a world that is enamored with what's going on behind the scenes, and this is reflected over and over in our culture. It's reflected in our books and cinema, even. I remember somewhere between 20 and 30 years ago, uh, a lot of parents were introducing their children to this this funny little weird kind of wizard named Harry Potter. Y'all remember that? Some of you still kind of remember him. Uh, Little kid, as as that narrative starts out, he's growing up in a dysfunctional, very hostile home environment. And then all of a sudden, the veil is pulled back for this kid, and he is revealed, it's revealed to him that that's not his real identity. He has a new identity, and the place from whence all of this is given to him is this geographic location known as Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Y'all remember that? Who's gone to Orlando and spent more money than you had since? Standing on platform nine and three quarters, right? That, that's what happened. All these years later, we, go, we spend all kinds of money, take our kids to Universal Studios so that we can experience that themselves. Kids, by the way, are not the only people subject to this. Just a few years after the Harry Potter series began, uh, an adult version of that sort of alternate reality started that even this afternoon, you can go and still see that franchise at the movie theater. It's called The Matrix, right? If you remember this scene? From, uh, from Morpheus, he's offering Neo, you got two options here. The blue pill means you go right back the way things were, right? You're standing here on, on, on another sort of equivalent to Platform 9 and 3 quarters, and, and I'm going to pull the veil back further than you. If you don't want to know anymore, take the blue pill. I'll put you right back where you came from. Take the red pill. I'm going to pull it back further, and I'm going to let you know what's really going on. And then just in the last few years, those of us who are Gen Xers have been exposed to something that really brings back a lot of memories. It's a a television series called Stranger Things. Who's watched that? Got a few of you. And it introduced us as well, didn't it, to this sort of alternate universe, didn't it? Like there's this other reality. It is tissue paper thin between us and me. And sometimes if you're not even careful, you, you can get sucked into that without realizing it. And fellow Gen Xers, the title for this alternate reality was... The upside down. That's right. That's right. All of that reflected and created. And over and over and over, we kind of see this. And actors and filmmakers, artists, cultural influencers, there's a reason they create these stories. There's a reason that they're quite confident that they can make a pretty decent living uh, off of creating these stories. It's because intuitively, God has put something in us so that we'll know there's something more real than just what our own experiences are picking up, hasn't he? I mean, that's why you're sitting here today. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that someone existed in history who was God, who wrapped himself in human flesh, who died for the sins of the world, and rose bodily from the dead. But you didn't see any of that. You didn't bear witness to any of it. 
but you intuitively believe it happened and that it matters. And therefore, that there's this whole other reality that all of that that intersected with our human history represents. We know that there's something more real than our own experiences. And so today, as we begin the, the prophetic section, if you will, of John's revelation, we get our first substantive look behind the curtain. I mean, we caught a, just a brief glimpse of that in chapter 1, the unveiled glory of Jesus at the beginning of the chapter. Last week, we heard Jesus speak specifically to seven churches in Asia that are going, undergoing hardship, specific calls to repent, uh, encouragement to endure. And today, the Holy Spirit, through his servant John, is going to invite you and me to stand on our own personal platform, nine and three quarters. He's going to invite us to watch this thing get pulled back. The first of multiple curtains is about to be pulled back. The first of many powerful visions is about to be described. Those churches persisted and persevered because they knew there was something more real beyond their physical senses. And John, through this letter, is confirming that belief in this very first peak behind the curtain. Now, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here so that we don't misunderstand what we're reading. Number one is these visions are not necessarily in, in progressive or linear consecutive order, all right? So what happens in four, and then what happens later in chapter six, and we get to next week with the four horsemen, it, it's not what he, he's not trying to communicate, well, this is going to happen in your field, and then after that, this is going to happen, and, and as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we have reason to believe that that's the case, because when you get to chapter 12, he doesn't go forward, he actually goes back like 90 years to the first Christmas. So this is not something that's necessarily written in chronological order. Secondly, we need to get out of our heads the sort of Western-oriented desire to, to do one-to-one -one correlations, to say, what does all this mean? We in our culture are way over-obsessed with the how and the when, all right? Who are the key players going to be? And can I do a one-to-one -one correlation? And is what I read in the journal yesterday relevant at all to what I'm, I'm reading here? We need to understand that John, remember what I said, John is the one inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. It is his intent that matters. And what does he intend to write? And what we know from looking at this letter is John is not really concerned about the how and the when. John is concerned with the what and the who. And as we see moving through this text today, that's going to be very important to your survival and perseverance spiritually and to mine. Chapters 4 and 5, give us that picture. They are parallel passages of worship. And one of the things that happens here is after that initial revelation of Jesus, after those very specific words to those churches living on earth, we have all of the attention of heaven and earth very suddenly and very radically shifting toward a throne where a Trinitarian God, a distinctly Trinitarian God, rules and reigns. We see the Father in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. So we see the Father. We see the Son prior to this in chapter 4, verse 2. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And then we see that all of this is revealed to us, not by the Father and the Son, but by the Holy Spirit. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, this all happened while I was in 
the Spirit. Now, here's the big idea. This Trinitarian God sitting on his throne, everything that we're going to examine together really is intended to communicate this. Worship is what will get you through. That's the big idea. All right? Whatever you're going through right now, right? Hundreds of people in front of me. Who knows how many are watching right now? There's no possible way this redneck with his three-pound fallen brain can know everybody's situation. But I can tell you this. Whatever your situation, worship will get you through. But we need to define what worship is, and we need to define the proper object of our worship. Because just like these early churches, there are temptations toward other things, toward, toward lesser things. And here's, here's what, with all my might, I want to try to communicate to you today. What you need right now, I don't care what's going on in your life, what you need right now more than anything else is a vision of this God that brings you to worship. That's what you need. And I want us to look at that vision, and I want us to see the five challenges that rise out of it. The first thing we see is, is that John is telling these churches, you need to reclaim your strength and there's this really counterintuitive way that he tells them to do it. You know, if somebody tells me I need to bulk up or, or strengthen up, they're probably telling me that now that I am officially a middle-aged man, that, that I need to go to the weight room. I need to pump some iron. I need to do some Nautilus, uh, maybe do some cardio. I, I need to go home and get back on the elliptical, which is actually true. All right. Anybody else like me, the procrastinators? You're like, January 1st is for all the people that aren't really going to commit. I'll just wait till March, right? All right, when we think about strength training, that's what we think about. You work, man. This happens in precisely the opposite way. Look at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the backs. All right, get this picture. It's both sides. That's important. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, we looked everywhere, no one was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So it's a double-sided scroll on both sides. And what John sees here, and we're going to see this with more detail moving ahead, is symbolic of God's sovereign will over all of human history. This scroll is symbolic of effectively the title deed to planet Earth. We'll get to that in just a moment. And the double-sided nature of it would have reminded the first century audience of the typical Roman legal document. So in ancient Rome, they had wills. They had deeds to real estate. If there had been such a thing as an automobile, they would have had title documents. They, they, they would have had estate plans. They would have had trusts or something, whatever the ancient equivalent would have been to those things. And you think about official contracts, those kinds of things. And I think the late John Walford was correct, again, to identify this part of the vision as a picture of the deed, the title deed, not just to the world and the universe, but to all of human history. And it is sealed with seven Seals. Now, there's a couple of layers of understanding here. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion. And we, we, we know that from other places. Ezekiel, Daniel uh, had told us that long before the, the coming of Jesus in, in their own apocalyptic visions. And so we see that there's something that's about to be uh, completed. But, but uh, another interesting fact here is that Roman law in the first century provided that a will, a final will and testament, be attested to by seven witnesses. 
So you see this legal document, this, this symbol is of a Roman legal document that anybody in the first century would have instantaneously recognized, sealed with seven seals. And, and another thing that they recognized was if you're going to open that seal, right? so when you put a will together, if you've ever done an estate plan with an attorney and they sit down and, and 15 minutes later you're like, what am I buying a house? Right? Because it's complicated, and it, te- it tends to get more and more complicated uh, with every successive year. Well, in, in Rome, what they would do is seven witnesses would have to come. Each of them would have to apply their own personal seal to it in order to execute the estate plan. And then when that person died, those same seven people had to reappear before the court, and each one of them had to break the very seal that they themselves had placed on it. So imagine that someone has died, and now you have this further tragedy of you can't find those seven people. This is the vision. Right? It's, it's very earthy, would have been at least, for a, for a first century audience. There's nobody here to break the picture. Seven suffering churches are looking for hope. Seven suffering churches know that their hope is contained in the history that is to come and the spiritual realities that they don't see and will not see unless these seals are broken and no one is found worthy to break them. This is where your strength begins. In response to that news, John begins to weep. Feel how counterintuitive that is? To a culture like ours that builds in redundancies and fail-safes. To a culture like ours that thinks that victory or success always comes from having the right plan in place. And and by the way, I'm not speaking against that. Ask our staff. I expect fail-safes. I expect redundancies. But, but those who have done their jobs the way they're supposed to and then something bad happened anyway will also tell you, we go, yeah, sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes demons get in the sound system, don't they? Some, sometimes these things happen. We, we, we understand that. But, but we, we still kind of tend to have this, this disposition, don't we, that if, the, if something fails, it must have been something you didn't properly plan for. Or if something goes wrong, and man, there ain't no better example of this than the way we talk today in civil society. Well, the answer is quite simple. I've already seen all the diplomats on social media since this whole Ukraine thing started up, and it makes me laugh just a little bit. Well, it's really simple. All we got to do is, boy, I can tell you work for the UN. You've been inside the Oval, haven't you? You know what's really going on. You, yeah, we, we tend to think like that, though. And because we think like that, We think there's no space in the Christian experience for helplessness. Well, that's exactly what the apostolic witness tells us is necessary for the kind of power that Jesus promises. His strength is perfected in my weakness. I don't like that any better than you do. I don't like it. My whole personality as a leader, I like control. I like to be able to be in charge. I like to know what's coming next. I like to have an answer. I like to be the guy that helps people in the process. I like to think that all of that is altruistically driven. I think most of the time, by God's grace, it probably is. Sometimes it probably isn't. I don't like it. See, I love for God to look good, but I like to look good too. When God makes himself look good by making me look like an idiot, that don't make me feel too good. Right? And it's happened a few times. And so we don't, we don't like that, right? And so what happens then when history, events, circumstances throw unexpected things at you that you didn't see coming? 
And now you don't know what to do. John's hope for you is there's your moment, right? There's your Sit in the weakness. And look, it, it's painful. It can be so incredibly painful. Last year, I got a call from one of our first responders, a young man the same age as our Seth had taken his own life. Now, I've been on the scene with our, and we got first responders in the room right now, and you, you don't, we, we don't thank them enough for what they do, especially here, because they don't get paid to do it here. They do it because they love people, and they love to serve people. And, and every time I've ever rolled up to a scene, I, I see them, I mean, it looks like a beehive, right? They come off that truck, they come off that ambulance, Everybody knows what they're supposed to grab. Everybody knows where they're supposed to go, what they're supposed to do. It is a well-oiled machine, and so you know it's bad when a block from the house you can hear the wails of a grieving family. And when you roll up onto the scene, those same people that I have seen so many times running are just kind of standing there staring at each other in the front yard, and they're just hollowed out. And as if to look at each other and go, that, that, there's, there's nothing we can do. I, I got back to the church. We had an event that night. My wife noticed something wasn't right. And she's like, are you okay? And I said, no, no. Because there are moments like that in all of our lives when we look and we recognize that this can't be fixed. This genie cannot be put back in the bottle. This toothpaste cannot be put back in the tube. Now imagine that on a global scale. All right? Why is there no solution? Why, why are we the way we are? Why is the world in the shape that it's in? Not just right now, okay? I mean, look, America's feeling the pain like we haven't felt in a really long time, but the pain we're feeling right now, brothers and sisters, I love you, it's the same pain the rest of the world's been feeling. It's just been normal for them. For most of the two-thirds world, that, that's just the way. That's another day at the office for them. And, and then you look around and you see no human solution. And you come to the conclusion there's not a politician on the planet, there's not a pastor, there's not a person in authority or any kind of expert who's writing in to save the day. Everybody stands looking at the seals helpless with the recognition that as it turns out, we're actually far more vulnerable than we think we are. We're far more helpless than we think we are. Without God, we are far more hopeless than we think we are. Let, let me tell you why that's important. I know it's, this, is not, this doesn't sound like good news, but let me tell you why it is and why it's important. Because you can't grab onto him until you've let go of everything else. And that's what he's trying to teach us here. There is no hope. There is that first seal will not be touched until you weep, until you recognize. Isn't that a picture of salvation? You really only get the good news against the backdrop of the bad news. You, you don't genuinely come to Jesus until you understand the true state of who you really are and what you really deserve. And the fact that there was a God who loved you to the extent. That, yeah, you, you can't feel that love until you first sit in your sin for a little while and sit in your helplessness for a little while and sit in your complete inability to do anything about it before the throne of God.
You've got to let go. Reclaiming your strength starts, ironically enough, with desperate disposition. But that's where not only you're going to get your strength back, you're going to get your joy back. Look what comes next, verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. A couple of symbols that, that, that help us to understand the nature of Jesus here. And the first is that of a lion. That description can be traced, by the way, all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, and Judah in that passage was referred to as a lion. You are like a lion. And then in verse 10 of Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from you. There's a foreshadow. There's another one coming after you in your line who's going to keep that scepter. Fast forward to the other end of Scripture, and we see now John's vision of that ultimate lion. This same figure is also described as a lamb that has the appearance of having been slain. Now, why would anybody use a picture of a slaughtered, bloodied animal occupying a throne meant for a king? That doesn't make any sense to the world, does it? But that juxtaposition is as old as Isaiah 53. You remember what the prophet said there? We are like sheep who have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 800 years before the time of Jesus, the prophet says a new kingdom is coming. It's going to reveal the sovereign reign of our God, but it's going to come through a suffering servant. And now some 60 years after Jesus came and fulfilled that prophecy, John looks back and he reminds these churches he is the Lion of Judah and he is the slain Lamb of God. And that dual identity is the basis of all of our hope that our sins has, have been forgiven and that this cosmos that looks helpless right now is going to be restored. Everything's going to be set back right. That Lion Lamb furthermore has seven horns. That's a symbol for his perfect and complete power over the universe. It may seem like God is not running things, but it just seems that way. He has seven eyes, perfect and complete knowledge. There is nothing that he does not see. And so in the midst of all that helplessness, in the midst of a broken world that cannot be put back together, and churches that don't even have anywhere near, not even a modicum of the cultural power and influence that you and I have today, they stand there helpless with their apostle weeping, and they get a tap on the shoulder from the angel, and he says, look, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. I know you haven't found anybody qualified to save you here on earth. He's coming, and when he gets here, he's going to take the scroll, and he's going to break all seven. That's your hope. That's your strength. That's your joy. Right? To suffering churches, it is this picture of Jesus. And so as they look to the future, their confidence and joy doesn't come from all the things that are about to be revealed. It comes ultimately with the only one with authority to break the seals. And that's your choice, by the way. That's your choice. You, Right now, whatever's going on in your life, you can take joy in Christ and his sovereignty and his control and his love for you. 
His desire for you, what we, what we ate and drank just a few moments ago, everything he did to prove his love for you, you can take all of your joy in that, and you can worship, or you, you can live a life that constantly switches back and forth between manic episodes. That's your choice. The late Edmund Clowney, Presbyterian theologian from Westminster Seminary, addressed this with what I think is such pastoral accuracy. He says this, without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. All right? Back and forth, back and forth, like somebody with spiritual bipolar disorder, right? It, you start with alarmism, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to become of the world? What's going to become of my nest egg? What's going to become of my marriage? What's going to become of my children? What's going to, what's going to, what's going to, and then, and then there's a soothing effect, and it comes through any number of things, any number of things, but, but at the heart of all that anxiety, you know what it is? It's, it's there's something in your life that you haven't let go of yet before you reach up to get God. Or, and some of you are foolish enough to actually think you can hang on to both. And you forgot that when the Lord told Moses, you shall have no other gods before me, he meant what he said. And you're still clinging on to this thing. You're like, what am I going to do? This platform that I've built for myself, this money that I've saved for myself, this culture that's changing around me, all of my plans, all this, this little kingdom that I've built my, for myself, it's going to crap. What am I supposed to do? And then you go soothe it with a placebo, whole carton of ice cream. Yeah. Or a shopping spree. Any number of, I mean, there's all kinds of ways this could come out. Pornography use. That's what porn is. It's a placebo. It, it, you, you keep into that stuff, yeah, it's going to destroy your marriage and destroy your sex life and your drive and your morality and everything else. It's going to destroy absolutely everything. And it will ultimately lead you into such deviancy that it will be unrecognizable. But porn doesn't start out that way. Porn, when it starts, is it very, so little of that is actually about sex. It's about an attempt to deaden the pain. It's about an attempt to find some kind of temporary relief. And you think you can find it. Some of you, even your sex life with your spouse is negatively affected because you've treated that part of your married life like it was supposed to be a placebo. We have a speaker coming to talk about sex in a few weeks. And uh, you'll, you'll enjoy that one, but one, one of the things she'll tell you is that, no, it ain't about that. Yeah. If you think it's about that, for some of you, it's alcohol. Now, we're not teetotaling fundamentalists around here. You know that. You know that. A, a fine glass of wine with a steak, a good glass of bourbon, is a good gift from a gracious God when it is enjoyed in moderation and under the control of the Holy Spirit. Downing an entire bottle before noon is rebellion against your Creator. And I love you, but some of y'all make jokes about it even. Yeah, mommy sippy cup. Yeah, like God's supposed to think that's funny. What is that? It's a placebo. It's a placebo. That behavior means 
I've allowed my circumstances to control me. And, and here's the point of these verses. You don't need everything to work out. You don't need that card, that, that house of cards you've built to stay up. In fact, it may be the best thing that ever happened to you for that whole thing to just go to crap. For God to just go and just blow the whole thing down. Because the true source of your joy, the eternal, never-ending, non-dependent source of your joy comes from something entirely different. And that's what we see here. You don't need things to change or work out or not fall apart. Brother, sister, you need a vision of this God and the lion lamb who controls it all. You need the presence of his son to reclaim your joy and reclaim your strength. And thirdly, to reclaim your identity. Verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your, see we're back to the Lord's Supper right here. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now the earlier chapter that we don't have time to cover today but again you've got the commentaries, the resources are all out there. You've got your own Bible. Go back and read chapter 4. It introduced us to these four living creatures. John provides in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4 this vivid imposing vision of something quite frightening. I got to tell y'all I'm a hunter but I have kind of a standing policy that I don't hunt things that can hunt me back. Some of y'all are braver than me and that's fine. Your man card's just a little bit bigger. That's cool. That's cool. You won't ever see me intentionally. All right? I was in the woods with one of y'all. I won't mention who he was. But I, we, were, we were moving into the woods. And all, we, we'd gotten, I don't know, maybe a quarter mile into the woods. And he turns around and he goes, oh, by the way, because we were, we were hunting on a, on a piece of private property that we had permission to be there from the, the family, the couple that was there. He turned around and he goes, oh, by the way, if you see a bear, shoot it. The wife wants a rug. And I went, I ain't shooting no bear. I'm running. Right? So I'm now reading this picture. These sound like the kind of creatures that hunt you, not the other way around. Okay? But the language here is intended to be symbolic of the whole created order on earth and in heaven. Okay? That, that's the symbol, and that's what it conveys. So at the realization that the slain lamb has executed his authority to break these seals and open the scroll, all of the created order, including those kind that can hunt me back, fall and they worship the lamb. That's the picture. And with them, the 24 elders. And that's a symbolism of God's united people. It started, obviously, in our narrative with Israel. And so the first 12 are the, are the tribes. And out of them, and through their Messiah, comes the church, led by 12 apostles. And now, here they all are, in, in, in the end, together, 
all of them together, Jew, Gentile, male, female, Greek-speaking, Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, tax collectors, uh, political revolutionaries, and fishermen, and then 2,000 years later joining them are mechanics and engineers and nurses and teachers and Republicans and Democrats and teachers and, and, and Europeans and Africans and every tribe and language and people and nation. You've, you've united us all by ransoming us with your blood. And when we worship like that, as we are called to worship, we remember who we are because we're standing actually in the place where we're supposed to stand. Remember, worship is two things, divine focus and eternally submissive posture. That's right. It's not, it's not merely all right, what we just did uh, and what we're doing now, even uh, together as a corporate body. Very important to worship together. Those are the elements of worship. Whether or not that's corresponding to what goes on in your heart depends on those two things. Do you have an exclusively divine focus, and do you, secondly, have an eternally submissive posture that allows you to be able to hold everything in this world very loosely? Very loosely. Like the redeemed from all over the world in a moment like that with the created order in total singing back up to you. You can confess, we exist because of you. That's who I am. We conquer because you have conquered. We reign because you will reign. And it is that strength and that joy and that identity that will make you to endure. Remember, I, I, I said last week, without, with, without this kind of disposition, you don't have enough in the tank for what comes next. Doesn't matter how sound your doctrine is or even if you do have it all figured out. This letter is about endurance. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The word worship means, by the way, to pay heed or to give attention, to occupy yourself with a person or a thing. That, that, that's actually how you answer this question. If you were wondering, well, wait a minute. You say, just because I come into church is important, Pastor, you've, you've, you've been emphasizing that all, all through the pandemic. Don't, don't get disconnected how important that is. Now you're telling me that just because I do that doesn't mean I'm really worshiping. Well, that, yeah, both of those are true. Then, then how do I know I'm really worshiping? You ask yourself this question. Who or what gets my attention? Who or what gets my resources? Who or what gets my time? Is your attention on this throne that's being revealed to you? See, that's what's happening here. All right? The chorus of praise grows louder and stronger and more numerous. No one else can help you endure. And listen, it, it doesn't have to be any of the bad stuff that I talked about. Too much ice cream that makes a diabetic out of you. Too much alcohol that pickles your liver. Uh, too, too much illicit sexual activity that, make, that turns you into a pervert. Perhaps it gives you an STD. I'm not even, it doesn't even have to be something like that. It could be something that, that is a good thing that gets turned into a God thing, which then makes it a bad thing. Some of y'all worship your children. 
I do not. Where's all your focus? Where's all your attention? Where's all your time? I'm not telling you not to invest in them, not to love them, not to see them. But, but yeah, I'm asking about the disposition of your heart, right? It's one thing for you to want to see your kids succeed. It's another thing when, well, I, I didn't get the opportunity they got, and so I'm now, you, maybe you wouldn't say this, but in your heart, it's like, well, they've got more resources because of me, and so I, I, I want them to be able to accomplish things and do things that I never accomplished. Well, you're just putting pressure on your kid when you do that, and that might not be the destiny that God has for them. But they feel pressured by that. You know why? Because mom and dad's treating them like a little Messiah. Sometimes it comes through that whole helicopter parent thing. Right? I got to protect them from anything bad happening. That I have fashioned an idol and I don't want nobody scratching it. That's what it means. I'm not telling you not to protect your children. I'm saying check the disposition of your heart, right? I, I got, we got three of them. We've raised one. We're in the process of raising two more. We love them more than we love our own lives. We feel about them exactly the same way that so many of you feel about your children. I'm going to tell you, they are terrible messiahs. All three of them, okay? You're going to get let down. You're going to get let down. See, these are people who've let go of all that. They've let go of it. This is why, by the way, when, when, when Amy and I were in seminary, we ran into people who just hated going home for Christmas because the parents wanted them to live right next door. I want my grandchildren right here. I went, you know, what are you talking about? Call to the nations. So you got to be careful about a church like ours that talks about the world that Jesus died to save because I can guarantee you this, within the next 10 years, some of our children are going to take that seriously. And some of you will be tempted because you may have made your children an idol to say, you ain't taking my grandkids to that foreign country where they catch all kinds of diseases and God knows what. Really? Who do they really belong to? Where's your focus? Where's your focus? Where's your attention? See, when you get it on him, you can let go of everything else. Amen. That's what they say. That, that's a short word for just may it ever be. That is, it, you know what amen is? It's short for this. Bring it. That's what it means. All right? It's just another variation of what Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 when he said, pray in this way, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. I want that. I want that more than anything. The first recipients of this vision were living under fire. And that first vision revealed to John, for their benefit is not, shh, it's all right, I'm going to take the pain away. Shh, be careful, I'm going to rapture you out of here. It's going to be okay. It's this, judgment is about to come. And you, my people, will be the first called to reckon with Jesus. Make up your mind right now. You're going to freak out? You're going to try to numb the pain and just cope? Or here's the other choice. Join with the rest of God's elect around this throne and make that the center of your attention and the object of all of your affection because that is how you endure. That's how you get through. That's how you overcome. That is how you conquer. That is how the church stands together at the end of the age and sings victory in Jesus. 
my Savior forever. That's what we learn in this first grand vision. They and we were created for this. I and you, we were made for this. And we learn that seeing this God changes everything. Here's what I've learned. There are people all over the world, including a lot of people who populate churches every week, who are spiritually starving to death. And what they're really starving for is the greatness of this God. And virtually none of them would prescribe that solution for what's going on in their lives. They wouldn't. It wouldn't even make the list. Wouldn't even make the list. You may have heard that I had a rather significant birthday this past week. And as it turns out, first thing tomorrow morning, I'm going to visit an endodontist because for my birthday this year, I'm getting a root canal. How apropos is that? They discovered the problem back in December. I had a lot of pain. I couldn't bite down. So I went to my dentist. She found it very quickly. And then I I said what most guys say, hey, it's Christmas and I got stuff I want to eat. Like, do I have to do this now? And because I think like most of the rest of y'all. And, and she said, no, it's not. It's not, thankfully, an emergency situation. She said, but you do have some infection in there. And so what, I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to prescribe an antibiotic called clindamycin, and you're going to be on a 14-day course of that just to make sure we knock it out good. And that's going to that's gonna take away the pain, and it's going to take away the infection, and it's going to give you time to get to the endodontist in 2022. And I said, sounds good. Five days later, the pain was completely gone. I felt wonderful. And and because the pain was gone, and because I could eat again, and because it was Christmas, and because I was enjoying myself, and most importantly, because I'm a dude, I said, I think I'm going to cancel that endodontist appointment. I'm feeling pretty good. Right? About a week ago, the pain came back. So I'm going in the morning. I don't want to, but, but as it turns out, it's not sufficient to merely deaden the pain, right? It's, it's not. Otherwise, my hope is in a pill, which means in all likelihood six months from now, the elders are having a come to Jesus meeting with me because there's some 1 Timothy 3 stuff that I violated, right? And so there's all kinds of consequences in your life as well as mine to simply seeking to deaden the pain. What God is calling you to is something bigger than that. We forget that the mere sight of the God who created us is what carried these churches through everything that they had to endure after this letter was written. You are either, and I am, let me just, just put this together. We are collectively either saying, amen, bring it to this vision, or we are living in rebellion. There ain't no third direction. And that is what this throne room, this vision is calling us to. You're either allowing him to rule and reign, grabbing onto him, letting go of everything, or you're trying to insert yourself and and, and all your crap into that reign and control some of it yourself. And I got to tell you how to love. There ain't nothing at the end of that road but heartbreak. Nothing. With a life until you get there, full of swings between panic and placebo. That's it. 
ending in all likelihood with separation from God. Because people who live like that never knew Jesus to begin with. What you need right now, what our church needs, or whatever comes next, is the same overwhelming, life-altering, knee-bending, peace-inducing vision of God that these people were given. And the question is simple. As you stand right now on your own platform nine and three quarters, and you have this vision revealed, do you believe it's real or don't you? God awaits your decision and your choice. Bow with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving not always what we think is the solution, but for giving yourself, for revealing yourself. And we thank you, Lord, that the invitation is open today. And Father, we, we know, may your Holy Spirit convict and overpower so that people would give themselves to you, that they would ask you to cover them with your presence for whatever comes next. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.